0: Amen. Can we give thanks for our youth ministry? Amen. I tell people this all the time. uh, I believe we have the best youth pastor in town, and I am so thankful for Pastor Derek and all they did. I mean, you realize he's only been here like eight months, right? Uh, And he's more than doubled the youth group, and he's getting our kids on mission, and God is just doing a great work there. And so… Um, praise God for Pastor Derek. Now, while he may watch uh, the clock, unfortunately I do not, and so we need to we need to get going for that reason. So let's take our Bibles and let's open to Luke chapter 5. We're in Luke chapter 5. I don't know if you watch uh, the, the Fixer Upper TV shows. There's way too many of those, and the TV solution to those kind of shows is always take out a wall. Amen? And it just seems like that's always the answer. But I I remember, I think I might have told you about this before. I saw one where uh, apparently they ran out of houses to fix up, and a family found a new church home. And what I mean by that is not that they, like, moved their letter or joined a new church. They literally moved into a church, and they put the living room into… The church and the dining room and the kitchen into the church. I don't know how you'd feel about that if someone moved in here and made this your living room. That'd be a big living room. But uh, apparently the housing market is just that bad uh, that people have to start looking for other options. You know, I saw that and I was a little sad. I don't know how you feel about that, but I was a little sad. There's a story in that building. And where are the people that belong in that room? It's a San Francisco church that a couple moved into, and it was just a shell of a building, no people left behind. And you wonder, what happened? Like, what happened to that congregation of people to where all we have left is a fossil? All we have left is is the shell of what once had life. I was on a website uh, recently, and on this website, it shows all these these things, these cathedrals all over Europe, and it's very interesting. They'll put these these pictures of these beautiful, beautiful churches all across Europe, and if you've ever been to Europe, uh, you'll see them. You can tour them, and you can go to them. Beautiful, beautiful churches. I mean, glorious. And this website is asking you, one after the other, pray. Just pray. Would you pray for us in Europe? that the churches would be full again because they're all empty, and the only thing they're used for is museums, exhibits, plays, and they're empty. You have to ask the question, what happened? Like, how did it get like this in Europe? Well, the answer is, is very simple. One generation had casual discipleship. The next generation had no discipleship which is why a day like today matters for our young people. We ought to be investing in the next generation because I want a legacy. I don't know about you. I want a legacy. Amen? Don't you? I want something to be left behind more than just a building to the next generation. Unfortunately, we're living in casual days, casual Christianity, half-hearted pursuits of God. Everywhere you look, there are just mild passions. And I, I, was, uh, I was laughing to myself last weekend. Uh, a few of the pastors got together to watch the football game, and as we were getting together, uh, how many of you know Pastor Greg? Do you know Pastor Greg? Love Pastor Greg. This guy is bold as a lion when it comes to the gospel. But let me tell you something, he doesn't know anything about football. Not a single thing. I mean, we were teaching him all the wrong terms. Uh, slam duck. Uh, uh, we were teaching him words like birdie and steal for football. And he was, you know, we were just having a good time with it. Um, it. When he showed up to the game, it was hilarious. He had no interest in the game. He just wanted to talk to each other. And he literally sat in the chair, not facing the TV. <laughs> it's like everyone was like lined up watching the game. He's looking at us. And it was just hilarious. He had uh, no passion for football. He's got a passion for souls. And, and while it's okay to be half-hearted and casual in your pursuit of sports or in your pursuit of other things, it is not okay to be casual in your pursuit of the gospel. In fact, Jesus Christ calls us to go all in. We're going to see that throughout the book of Luke. And in fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we're told we need to be a, a living sacrifice by the apostle Paul. That we would die to ourself, put our whole self on the altar. So today I want to look at a defining moment of discipleship. I want to look at the complete discipleship of Levi. He he stepped all in. He had complete, not casual, discipleship. He had full, fully devoted discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to show us today, the day that, that Levi, the disciple Levi, went all in. So, would you take your Bible? Let's stand together in honor of God's holy Word. We are in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. It says this, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, Sitting at the tax booth, he said to him, "'Follow me.' And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, "'Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners?' And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Today I, I want to, uh, to give a message for sinners, because that's all of us. And uh, what I want to talk about is very simple, that casual disciples, well, they believe a very costly myth. The, the idea that you can just float and be a casual half-committed disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a myth. It's as mythical as unicorns tap dancing on rainbows. It's just not real. However, complete disciples, they balance a very costly mission. I want to show you that today. I want to teach you three very simple ways that you can balance the mission of discipleship in your life. This is formative. This is foundational. This is straight from God's Word to you on how to be a complete disciple. So, may God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. You may be seated. In our next service, uh, we're expecting to have around 130 teenagers in that service, and uh, I'm going to hopefully lay out for you a very clear path and them, a very clear path of what discipleship for their entire life ought to look like. You ought to be praying for that next hour. Amen? Amen that we would lay down a next generation of disciples that would follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, if you're taking notes, what do we need to do to be all in, to be fully committed, fully complete disciples? Number one, you need to gather with commitment. It is to gather with commitment. There there is a commitment that is called for from a disciple. Notice this is a need for America. We are a religious nation, not a regenerate nation, very religious. This is the nation that loves for God to show up at funerals and for Easter and for Christmas and for weddings, but mostly it's just casual. It's just cultural. In fact, I'm reading a book right now about unsaved Christians and the the epidemic of cultural Christianity. That's a reality. I felt it when I was doing ministry in Texas. I had a, uh, a youth camp or a youth disciple now, very similar to the weekend. Pastor Derek just, just finished up, and I remember this young man coming forward, grew up in a Christian home, uh, walked an aisle as an eight-year-old at VBS. Uh, Christian parents, they said grace at mealtime. They made it to church once or twice a month when the weather was good, uh, but it was just a normal… Culturally Christian family. They saw church as good for morals. They saw church as a rite of passage. They felt good on the times that they did attend. They mostly went because grandma and grandpa wanted them to come. Lance was a senior in high school, and he makes the decision at youth camp and he makes, comes to the reality that he's not really born again. He, he has no devotion to the Lord, no hunger for God. And he comes to me and he says, Pastor Matt, I'm lost. I'm just lost. I have no relationship to Jesus, Um, no desire for that. I've just grown up in a religious family, and that's the reality. Matthew 7 warns us that Jesus will tell many this startling phrase in Matthew 7, I never knew you. Many people are going to hear that phrase, I never knew you. And when Jesus is talking uh, or is giving that phrase, He's not talking about atheists and agnostics and pluralists and secularists. He's really talking about moral, religious people who are one day going to be shocked. Didn't we, didn't we say grace before mealtime? Didn't we want the Bible back in our schools? Didn't, didn't we vote our values? Didn't we… Didn't we believe that prayer should be allowed back in the public school system? Didn't we want America to return to its Christian roots? Didn't we want all of that? And the problem is those disciples know a lot about Jesus, but they didn't really know Jesus. They're trusting in their works rather than trusting in grace. They're casual. They're incomplete. So, in Mercy, this is a passage about Jesus calling unlikely people to take part in His own grace. Notice, notice the call to Levi in verse 27, and this is where we get introduced to Levi. Who is he, and, and what is this unlikely call to such an unlikely disciple? Levi, there's a little bit of a conversation to be had here ever since around the third century where the question is, is this, is this the Matthew of the gospel accounts? Is this, is this Matthew? And there's a little bit of a debate there. I just want you to be aware of that. Uh, could be. I think it probably is, though I can't say that definitively. I think this is probably Matthew, the tax collector, that Jesus renames. Um, Jesus, I don't know, he, he loved renaming people. Do you give people nicknames? Do you do that? Jesus loved doing that. James and John, you guys are what? The sons of thunder, right? Right? Uh, Simon, what's his new name? Peter, right? He loves giving new names, and I I believe that that's probably what's happened here. Levi, the tax collector, who is not a gift to anybody, he's just a a nuisance, a a plague on society. I believe that Jesus comes, gives him, well, he gives him a new name, Matthew, meaning gift of God. I'm partial to it, as you can imagine, uh, Matthew, but I think that's a great point. He's a tax collector. He's not a gift to anybody uh, by society standards. And Jesus comes to him and says, no, no, no. You have a new name and a new identity. You're a gift of God, a gift from God. That's what you're going to be. Isn't that encouraging? No matter what your past is, if you're here today, and this is the only point that you hear, if you're here and you've got a past, you've got a history, Jesus comes. He gives you a new identity. He gives you a new name. And you don't have to be captive to your past identity. Isn't that good news? Praise God. Praise God. God. Notice here in verse 27 what an unlikely candidate for a disciple He is. It says, after this. After what? Well, everything up until this point in the story. uh, Jesus cast out demons. He healed a leper. He healed the paralytic that got lowered down through the roof. You're not going to believe this next one. Hold on to your seat. This one's crazy. The the, the most outcast as possible, a tax collector. A tax collector. And, And when those words, when those two words hit the ears of the audience, there is this groan. And there still is today. Amen? That is a dreaded couple of words put together. And even if you are a tax collector, or even if you do work for the IRS, you don't lead off with that information at a party when you introduce yourself. Amen? You just don't do that. Uh, That is not something… it's like in the same category as Darth Vader, Stormtrooper, Oakland Raiders. I mean, it's just… it's just the bad guys. It is just the bad guys, and that's… that's the story. This is a very unlikely candidate for discipleship. It evokes a groan. Ronald Reagan said it well, the most terrifying words, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. (laughs) That's funny. Why does the tax collector get such a bad rap? Well, let's talk about him in society. These guys were some mixture of of, uh, sellout and traitor and thief and extortionist. Let's just walk through who they were. Really, they were kind of helping the bad guys they were helping the Romans. You see, what what you would do to become a tax collector, Rome would look at a region and say, well, by our estimation, we ought to get this much money from that that region that we own, that we manage, that we have conquered. And what they would do is they would take bids. They would take a bid. It was a tax farming system. And they would say, put in your bid, and whoever got the highest bid, you won it. And the expectation was that you'd collect more. You'd collect more than, than was normal, than was needed. And whatever extra that you collected, you got to keep. And, and that's not all. That's why these guys were hated. In fact, that's why John the Baptist told those tax collectors that repented, and we saw this a while back, don't collect any more than you're supposed to collect. That's part of your repentance. Stop cheating people out of their money. These guys were thieves, but not only were they thieves, they coupled themselves, they partnered themselves with the Romans, the bad guys. It would, be like, it would be like some of you partnering with some of the bad guys on our political national stage, North Korea, Russia, whatever it is. You're a partner with them. Uh, you're not going to make friends doing that. You're going to be seen as an outcast and an enemy by everyone who waves the national flag in their front yard. Beyond that, I mean, you could keep going. These guys, these guys are ruthless in their collection of those monies. I mean, what, what these guys would do is they'd basically have a shakedown practice. You'd come, you would, you would say, I, I have this amount of land, and they'd say, well, we need this much, and you say, I don't have it. Well, they had guards, and they had officials ready to take things from you. Okay, no problem. We'll take your land. No problem. You don't have any land or any money to give? No problem at all. We'll make a loan to you, and we'll we'll say you pay it back at 25%. How's that? It was unjust. It was cruel. It was oppressive. That meant that these tax collectors were absolutely despised. They were seen as unclean. Uh, there were all sorts of safeguards to the society to stay away from such people, but, but not Jesus. Jesus just went right in towards these people. Are you feeling hopeless today because of your sin? Are, are you feeling like an outcast today because of something in your past? Boy, this passage is full of hope. You ought to rejoice that God put this passage uh, on the docket for this morning to go through because this is a hope-filled passage. Realize that Jesus, He only calls those people who realize that they're not worthy. Notice in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, it says, "...for consider your calling, brothers. N- not many of you were wise." Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low. And despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one is going to stand in heaven and declare, God, you must be so proud of me, I deserve to be here. No one's going to stand in heaven and say, I kept all the right rules. No one is going to stand in heaven and say, I watched the right news networks, I read the right papers. No one is going to stand in heaven and say, I made it because I was smarter than someone else. No one does that. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all God's grace. So, if you know and you feel this morning that you are not worthy, you're in a great place for the grace of God to reach you. This is important. Notice that Jesus makes the first move. Verse 27… He saw the tax collector. Uh, that word saw is very uh, powerful. You might even highlight it. I don't know if you uh, underline or highlight in your text, but that's a really important word. Uh, the tax collector was just sitting there. Levi was just sitting at his tax booth. He might have been a, uh, um, maybe a, a lower level down than the main tele- tax collector. He might have been an official of a, of a main tele- tax collector. He was just sitting at his booth, oblivious, counting money, taking money making origami out of the bills and out of the the dollar bills or whatever. He's just sitting there in the midst of his sin, and notice this, Jesus saw him. That word, to see him, is a very powerful word. In fact, it's translated something along these lines, that he looked out, and he looked intently or purposefully. In other words, he saw the real Levi. He saw Levi's potential, real name, real destiny, Someone that God had plans for, just sitting in the midst of his sin, Jesus came looking. Jesus looked with hope. As we share the gospel, there's tons of hope, and we ought to live that way. We ought to look at people the way that Jesus did. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said, There's no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors and everla- or everlasting splendors. The dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature. If you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to bow and worship them. Isn't that a powerful line? Jesus saw the potential, Jesus saw the worth he saw Levi didn't miss him and then he said to him in verse 27 follow me now it's interesting his name is uh, some derivative of to join together to join together it's almost as if jesus is saying look you joined the bad guys you joined the evil guys now i want you to join me now i want you to follow me i want you to come after me and that was a intense call to discipleship, and it produced a visible effect. In fact, look at verse 28, and leaving everything, He rose and followed Him. Very powerful effects. Uh, My old pastor used to say, if there's no change, there's something strange, Uh, right? It's not because you have to follow the rules to get to heaven. It's not because you're keeping a law to earn your righteousness. That's not what it is. It's that when you're truly saved, there are visible effects, Anyone who's been born again can feel that and sense that over their lifetime, how God has pulled them along and started that process of sanctification, leaving everything. He rose and he followed him. The question for all of us is Does Jesus Christ, has he called you? Does he own you? Do you see those effects in your life? Does your life radically reflect the ownership of Jesus Christ? Uh, do this. Open in your Bible to Luke 14. Just keep your finger in Luke 5, but open over to Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Luke 14:26. Jesus engages in um, something I like to call Operation Crowd Reduction. Operation crowd reduction, and he does this from time to time, doesn't he? Sometimes when you find someone who's who's teaching the truth, it happens. Uh, This is operation crowd reduction, and he calls for extreme demands for extreme discipleship. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot… Everybody say the word cannot. He cannot be my disciple, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. These are extreme demands. It's a test of commitment. No one casually loves Jesus. In fact, you'll have a love so great for Jesus, everything else looks like hate. What he's saying here is that it goes on in verse 28. It talks about a building being built. For which of you desires to build a tower does not first sit down, count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him. What he's saying is, look, guys, when you build a building, nobody just starts building. Nobody just begins the project and doesn't think about how much it's going to cost you. You count the cost. Otherwise, you'll, you'll get to this place in the building where it's, it's only halfway done. You run out of money. Everyone's going to walk by and mock you. No, nobody casually enters a building project. They don't do that. Amen. Fools do that. Verse 31, no one casually goes to war. Now, I was up at around 4.30 this morning, and I was, I was listening to a podcast. I was listening to some preaching, and I was listening to the news. And who's in the news right now? Ukraine and Russia, right? I mean, it's, everything is Ukraine and Russia, and I'm watching that whole situation unfold. If you like my opinion on that, we can talk after the service. But uh, I'm watching that whole thing unfold, and I'm, I'm, I'm struck by this concept of no one halfway or half-heartedly goes to war. In fact, you try to prevent war if it, it's all possible, Right? That's what we see in this passage. What king? What king? Is there any king that just carelessly jumps into war? No king. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate? Deliberate. Whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Like nobody half-heartedly or casually jumps into war. You count the cost. keeps going. I mean, this is remarkable. In verse uh, 34, no one casually influences. It gives this, this picture of salt. Do you realize that Christians are called salt and what? Light. Salt and light. That's what we're to, to be to the world. We're to affect the world. We're to, to flavor the world. And, and it says in verse 34, salt is good. Amen. It might even be the death of me. Uh, it's like, It's good. Man, I keep that salt shaker really close to me. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It has no use. It, has, it is of no use for the soil or the manure pile. Um, salt was, I wish I had more time just to talk about salt in the ancient world. They would even give soldiers their pay with salt. Um, salt was something very highly valuable. You use it for flavoring. You use it for preserving. It was used in all sorts of areas. Uh, there were salt mines that made people very wealthy during this time. Um, Lots we could say about it. If it doesn't have any taste, though, it's really not helpful. Uh, The Romans, they would take some salt from the Dead Sea. They would scrape up that salt. You wouldn't want that for table salt, but they would still use it. They would spread it out all across the the road systems and try to keep the weeds down and keep the, the path clear so that things didn't grow there. But listen, if it's lost its taste and it's lost its effectiveness, really, it's not even good for the manure pile. Like, uh, it, if it has no effect on its environment, it's not good for anything. What this is saying is that you can't be a halfway casual Christian and have no effectiveness for the kingdom of God. Like, like if you're standing on a manure pile, I'll take the manure pile, right? I mean, there, there's, a, there's a value there, but a Christian that has no flavor for the world… Christian that has no effectiveness for the world, a halfway Christian, a casual Christian well, it's worthless. Nobody casually loves. You're going to have a love so great, it looks like hate. Nobody casually builds, nobody casually wars. nobody casually influences their environment. and nobody, nobody. I mean, nobody casually follows Jesus. It's a myth. It's a myth. It's a myth. It's a myth. That's the starting place. Are you committed to following Jesus Christ? Does your commitment to Him show up in everyday life? There are many, and this weighs on me as a pastor, there are many who will hear those terrible words from the Lord Jesus Christ, and I, I never knew you. And I want to just ask you today, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ And do you see grace in your life? Do you see his grace shining in your life? Have you truly stepped all in to follow Jesus? That's the starting place. The second mark of complete discipleship, it's not only those who have been gathered up by Jesus Christ, gathered with commitment, it is a growth in community. This next part is really fun. It's a short point. A lot of fun. This guy's been a Christian for all of like nine minutes, and he's already got a small group. Isn't that great? He's got, I mean, he's been a Christian for a short amount of time, and all of a sudden he has a bunch of people in his house talking about Jesus. He's in community. Notice first he pursues community in evangelism, in evangelism. Some of you have no value for community. That's a problem because Jesus has a value for you being in community. And so you need this in your life. Notice here the evangelistic community. Uh, How does Levi engage in community? Well, first of all, he's been transformed to desire this. Some of you, you may not desire community, and it may be that you're not been fully transformed. It may be that you're a cultural Christian. It may be that there's still that area of your life that needs to be changed, and you need to ask the Lord to give you that desire. But notice, he's been changed. He's giving a great feast. I mean, he's spending some money He was the leech of the Jewish world, and now he's throwing a feast for the Jewish world. He's spending some money. He's inviting them into his house. It's a remarkable story. Man, what a great application to invite lost people into your home to meet Jesus. I think sometimes we underestimate the power of having unbelievers in our homes. You and I ought to be doing something to Bring the lost. Bring people who do not know Jesus into a place where they can meet Him. Inviting people to church, inviting people into your home, and you might have all kinds of concerns. Oh, they may track in dirt. Yeah, they may. I mean, last week I told you a story that probably scared all of you, uh, how, you know, we had like 80-something people in our house, and they just tore up our house. We've got to start looking at our homes as the front door to the church. And so that person at your work who may drive you crazy or that neighbor that you're looking at and you wish they would just move away because they bother you, they are part of the commission and you ought to invite them into your home. This guy's been a Christian for just a few minutes and all of a sudden his whole life has changed. He starts seeing the home court advantage of his own home. Some of you are afraid to share your faith, but you realize your home gives you the home court advantage. In fact, you could even bring others into your home, and we saw last week that it's a four-to-one ratio. It takes four people to bring one person to Christ. You could bring several Christians and an unbeliever into your home and use some strategy. Bring an evangelist into your home. Bring someone who's really good at sharing their faith, and they're going to share your, their story, and that's something we ought to be doing. Really, though, God's God's community is a design for us all. Notice in verse 29, they're gathered around Jesus Christ. They're at table. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the table was far more than just fellowship. He, it was a place of connection. It was deep, deep community. What happens is if you eat a meal together, that food that you eat and that food that I eat, we are eating it together. It's becoming part of us. We're becoming part of that same food or the food is becoming part of us, and we're becoming like each other in that sense. It's deep fellowship. Jesus says in Revelation, He'll come and sup with us. He'll, he'll dine with us. There's fellowship. There's, there's deep camaraderie, and really that's the call for all of us. We need that in our lives. You need that in your life. You need, that's part of discipleship. You need to be in community. Now, let me give you a resource that's going to help you. You ready? We just launched a new website. I'm going to put a picture of it up on the screen. You ought to go check out that new website. It is live, and there are tons of resources on this website, including at the top right here. Go back to that previous slide. There's a a, a link that says classes, and if you click on that link, you'll go to a page that has this list of several categories of groups where you can have some fellowship, you can have some community together, and you can find a place where you belong. There's equip classes. Those are basically Bible studies and teaching classes. It's all sorts of places where you can grow in your faith. You can come to some on Wednesday night. You can come here, Dr. Allman. You can come here, something on marriage and the re-engage stuff. You can come here, a missions class. Lots of opportunities to grow in the Word, and there's a list of those. And then there's some shepherd groups that you can be a part of. Shepherd groups. These are great. These are great opportunities where you can come and take the questions from Sunday sermon, this right here, and you can apply those. You can come with answers and apply those and talk about those things and grow together and pray for one another. That's really a great way to live in community. The last one is some some support groups, and there's all sorts of things like battle plan ministry. There's some counseling resources for grief and for divorce care, and there's all sorts of specialty, maybe some places where some of you would say, I could really benefit from that. All of us need to find our community, whatever it is, both evangelistically and also internally in this church, in this body. I want to encourage you to do that today as part of your application. Let's live a balanced discipleship that we would gather with commitment, that we would grow in community. And the last one this morning, that we would go with commission. We gather, we grow, and we go. Notice here that uh, the Pharisees in the passage that we're studying, they are not concerned with reaching the the tax collectors. In fact, how did the Pharisees do evangelism? You want to know? They basically pointed a finger, and they said, you're not doing things the right way. You're not following the rules. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. And that's how they did evangelism. It was condemnation. Romans eight one, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't do evangelism that way. The Pharisees did. Notice they isolated from sinners. That's their evangelism. They isolated, and they're frustrated with Jesus when Jesus draws near to them. You had this two groups of people. You had Pharisees and scribes. Uh, there were Pharisees. They were kind of the middle class, um, and there were several thousand of these in Jesus' day. These are the guys who are very religious, and what they do is they find a scribe, and they gather around that scribe, and that scribe becomes their leader, their teacher. And that scribe adds to the law, interprets the law, gives them more rules to follow, and they sit under that scribe's tutelage. And what that scribe would do is he'd sometimes even charge them Uh, for them to be a disciple. And you'd want to do this because that's an exclusive group. In fact, I even wonder if some of these Pharisees are coming to check Jesus out to discover maybe He's our new scribe. Maybe He's the guy we ought to be following. Uh, I'm sure some of them are checking Him out for condemnation, but it was a point of pride, and they would separate. They would separate from sinners. We don't want to be that way. It blows the religious people's mind that Jesus is drawing near to sinners. Look at verse 30. Why do you eat and drink with with tax collectors and sinners? Can you believe it? They're essentially looking at Levi, and they saw this whole thing unfold. Like, how could you pick a guy like that? Like, Levi, a tax collector… I mean, you got the the pick of whatever you want. You could pick any of these other Pharisees. But you pick the tax collector? How's this guy going to interact with the rest of your disciples? I mean, he's probably cheated half of your disciples in their businesses. How's he going to get along with Simon the Zealot? That's not going to be good. I mean, Levi's been robbing these guys, working with the enemy. Notice it says they grumble. Isn't that a fun word in the in the Greek? Gungudzo. It's an onomanopeic word. It's an onomatopoeia. Do you remember that from grammar school? It's a word that uh, that sounds like its definition. Gungudzo. Blah 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 blah. They grumbled. That's the idea. Uh, they grumbled. This is a PR nightmare. Jesus is hanging out with sinners, and they grumble about it, and they slander Him. When you do ministry, this is part of Satan's textbook for how to attack ministers of the gospel. He does this because that's, that's who he is. Satan is a slanderer. He's a liar. He throws accusations against God's people. Notice here he attacks not the, the leader. He doesn't do that, he attacks the followers. Did you see that? They grumbled. Not at Jesus. Who did they grumble to? The disciples. They, they start grumbling to the people around Jesus. You attack the leader by attacking the disciples. Oh, oh, I don't like that teacher. I don't like that person because of this, 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 or this. And it looks very godly, I'm sure. Satan loves to promote religion. And he hates true salvation by grace through faith, not of works. So when you start preaching the gospel, Satan will oppose it. And so you have to expect this. We're, we're ready for it at Central Church. We know it's coming. We're taking stands on the gospel and on Scripture. We know that's just part of ministry. Mark or Matthew chapter 5 verse 11 says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so, they persecuted the prophets. Pharisees, they're not convicted to help. They're convicted to slander. They're not convicted to draw near. They're convicted to separate. How unlike our Savior that is. Look at Jesus, and we'll be done at this point. Jesus, He was commissioned to draw near to people, to help people. It's been said well that Jesus didn't come to, to rub it in, He came to rub it out. Jesus, in verse 30, there's this, there's this question, and it's posed to the disciples, and, and Jesus answers it, why do you eat and drink with, with tax collectors? And I want you to notice this. This is amazing. Jesus doesn't even like like answer that. Like in this like he doesn't even like make an excuse for it. He doesn't even say, "Well, they're not that bad." Like he's like, "Yeah, I've seen sinners before. Those are sinners. You're right. Those are really bad sinners." He doesn't like give excuses. "Oh, but you just got to understand. He had such a bad upbringing, Levi. He's just such a bad upbringing." And and Levi, you know, you should have seen his his parents. They were messed up. That's why he's… He doesn't make any excuses. He It's like, yeah, they're sinners. They sure are. What are we going to do about this? We're going to separate from them? Point at them as they go to hell? It's not what Jesus does. He chooses the path of a missionary. What does a missionary do? A missionary goes into a society. He goes into a culture they enter into that culture. They eat with that culture. They drink with that culture. They are part of the life events of that culture, and yet they don't sin. That's what Jesus is doing. He's doing mission work. He draws near. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 24, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, listen to this last part, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, so you enter in. You enter in. You minister to them in the midst of their problems, in the midst of their situation, but you keep yourself unstained from the world. You don't sin. Now, now they slandered Jesus the whole time he was on planet Earth. He came as a glutton or as a drunkard, and he was neither. He was neither. He entered in. He lived among. He condescended. He was incarnational. He was a missionary and yet He never sinned, and that's what we're being called to do today. Hey, just a couple of quick applications, and we're done, and we're going to take communion this morning, um, and we're going to use that time to commit. If you need a communion element, I want you to raise your hand. We'll have, we'll have people pass those out here, but let me give you a couple of quick applications as those groups of people start passing out those elements. A couple of quick applications here. Just raise your hand if you need them, and we'll get to you in just a minute. Number one, quick application. If you are in this situation, if you're in a situation where you find yourself looking at your life and you say, you know what, I may not be a Christian, have an honest conversation about that. Be honest with yourself. don't, uh, Don't let yourself be tricked out of eternal life. Examine yourself. Are you in a casual relationship with God, a cultural relationship with God, or have you taken the plunge and gone all in? See, the truth is there's going to be many on the day when they face the Lord Jesus Christ who had a form of godliness, but they weren't truly born again. I just want to call you and just ask you, are you truly born again? Be sure. Be sure. We'd love to talk to you about that if you're not born again, if you're not a Christian, We'd love to tell you about Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life, the life that you could never live, and who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead and gave His life as a ransom for for many so that you don't have to follow some list of rules or moral commands in order to earn your righteousness. Jesus did it all, and it comes by grace through faith, and you'll love Him. Today, we would call you to believe on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number two, number two second applications, you need to consider yourself a missionary on a mission field. As you leave this place today, you need to go into the city of Memphis, the town of Collierville, on a mission. You need to go to your work looking at those people, not as problems, but as possibilities. You need to to look at them with different eyes. Look at them with the eyes of Jesus Christ, real person, uh, real possibility, real destiny. And when you start to do that, you might even start inviting them to mealtime and inviting them into your home and sharing your testimony that you are just a tax collector, and Jesus changed every part of you. Number three, you need to seek a balanced discipleship. Ask the question, am I complete? As you look at those three points, uh, just ask that simple question, am I balanced in those three points? If we can put them up on the screen here, there's three main points to the service. Uh, gather with commitment. Grow with community. Go With commission. It's like, which one of these am I not doing? Some of you are in lots and lots of Bible studies. You're soaking in a lot of knowledge, but you can't point to one place where you're serving or you're on a mission. I got to tell you, we have needs. Last Sunday, we had more children and students on our campus than we've had in years, in years. we we have needs. We have people that need to serve. We we have leaders uh, needed in both of those ministries. We need people to step up and to serve. Where are you serving? Where are you serving? Are you on a mission? There's others of you that maybe you're serving, 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 but you're missing out on community. We need to seek balanced discipleship, and that's, that's what I see in this passage calling us to. Casual disciples believe a costly myth. Complete disciples balance a costly, costly mission. Well, today we're going to recommit, and we're going to do that by taking communion. So I want to encourage you, would you just take the elements right now. If you need one of those still, you can raise your hand up. It's not too late. We'll get those to you right here in the middle. Anyone else? Today we're going to take communion want you to prepare those elements, but I want to just talk about it just for a minute as we take this together. If you're a Christian, we invite you to take this with us. If you have membership at another church or if you're a part of another fellowship, we encourage you to take this with us as a member of the Big C Church of Jesus Christ. We're a family, and we take this as a meal together. But this is not for unbelievers. I'll say this in the next service, and I'll say it here as well. This is something that we take together as believers. If you're not truly born again, don't take it. Just, just set it under your chair, and, and it would just be an empty ritual. This does not earn us any favor with God. This does not make you washed from your sins. This does not do anything to, to increase your standing before God. This is something that the family does as an act of worship, as an act of renewal, as an act of recommitment, as a picture of what Christ has done for us. We're going to take the bread this morning, and as we take the bread, we're going to remember Jesus Christ, the one who has brought the new covenant. We're going to look at that next week his superior covenant for us. And I hope that you'll, that you'll be there for that Sunday as we talk about Jesus Christ who brings this new covenant. It says that in 1 Corinthians 11 that he received from the Lord. Paul, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, as we take the bread right now, let's remember Jesus Christ. Let's remember all that He has provided for us, that He gave us life and life everlasting. Let's take the bread together if you're born again. You can go ahead and take the lid off of the cup. I want to pray for us before we take this element. This is a moment of recommitment. Heads bowed, eyes closed, let's pray. If you sense yourself out of balance, I especially want us to think about it before we take this element. Let's recommit to the mission that God has given us. Let's recommit to our path of discipleship and let's do it remembering that Jesus Christ shed His blood, He was fully committed to us, fully committed to the Father's glory. He did all that the Father sent Him to do. He accomplished all that the Father sent Him to accomplish, and He shed His blood for us. Father, we take this minute to reflect, to repent, and to recommit. Your Son, Jesus Christ, was the picture of commitment. He was the picture of a devoted missionary. He was the picture of perfect community. Your Son, Jesus, came, and out of such extreme commitment to You, He shed His blood by dying the death that we deserved. And Father, I look at my life, and so often I feel like that tax collector. But Father, the gospel reminds me that that As you look at me through Christ, you see your perfect Son, that because of His death and because of His suffering, because of His passion for us, we're accepted. I don't have to earn something. I don't have to perform some ritual, go through any other priest. He is our priest. Jesus is our priest. And He has done it all for us. Father, we thank You for that gospel reality. And Father, as we think about the gospel, we remember that it came at an extremely high price. It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It wasn't wasn't the blood of animals. It was the precious blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we take this Pray in our hearts, even right now, we would recommit to the path of discipleship you have laid down for us in this passage. Father, we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It says in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Beloved, let's take it together now. Amen. For as often as you drink, or as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Beloved, let's stand and let's proclaim and let's worship and let's leave this place declaring that Jesus Christ was the sufficient sacrifice for our sins, and let's tell the world that message.